This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We are moving on to the second half of our lecture series here today with a little bit more of a focus on uh, dietary fats. So I'm going to be talking about dietary fat, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we'll kind of explore a little bit more about, all right, what types of fats should we be eating, and what effect does that have or not have on our health? So we're going to talk a little bit just to give you an overview about, you hear about heart-healthy fats and heart-unhealthy fats. So we'll go first to the, we'll the, get the bad stuff out of the way, the saturated and trans fats, and then we'll look at the unsaturated fats or the good fats. Uh, we'll mention briefly cholesterol, because there's some confusion about how the cholesterol in the foods you eat, like in egg yolks, what effect does that have, if any, on your blood cholesterol levels? And you'd be surprised, perhaps, that it's actually quite small. Um, we'll talk about the essential fatty acids. Uh, if you do eat fish, what's the difference between EPA and DHA? And if you don't eat fish when you buy a fish oil supplement, A, should you be, or B, how much should you be taking? Um, and then we will not be going too much more into detail on the Mediterranean diet since we've kind of already covered it. But at the end, I'll show you how to determine your own fat needs. So especially if you're a numbers person, you can get a little bit more of an idea. Okay, I got to aim to eat this much of this type of fat or stay away from this type of fat. Okay, so when we speak about lipids, it's just an interchangeable term for the word fats. And sometimes fats get a bad rap, especially in the 1990s did a lot of damage in the sense that fat was demonized. Everyone was on a fat-free or a low-fat diet. But it's important to note that fat has many beneficial uh, things that it does for our body as well as for our foods. Okay, When it comes to foods, when you walk through the airport and you smell that delicious Cinnabon cinnamon bun, what you're smelling is the fat cookie. Okay, fat provides texture, taste, mouthfeel, flavor, and aroma to the foods that we eat. But in our body, it pads our organs, it insulates our bodies, and fat plays an important role in every single cell membrane. So if, you, if you've had the, the experience to work perhaps with patients who are starved or who perhaps have anorexia nervosa, an eating disorder, um, oftentimes you notice that they have very poor quality hair, skin, and nails. If you've been on a chronically fat-deprived diet, Every single cell membrane in your body is negatively affected. And we see that physically, physically manifested in hair, skin, and nails. So fat plays a role both in our bodies and in our foods. Every gram of fat we get, as Dr. Barron mentioned, provides us with nine calories. So fat, we say, is the most energy-dense of the nutrients. And the basis for all of these silly low-fat diet recommendations in the 1990s was actually, at its core, a pretty good idea. We knew most Americans were eating too many calories. Since there's more than twice as many calories in a gram of fat as there is in carbon protein, it made sense that, okay, if we tell people to cut back on fat, they'll automatically cut back on calories. What happened was they cut back on fat and they started eating a ton more white bread and sugar. So you bump up your carb intake by hundreds of calories a day. That's why everyone gained weight. In theory, if you hold everything carbon protein-wise in your diet constant and cut back on your fat, you would theoretically cut back on calories. When you eat fat-free foods, they take the fat out, they got to put something else back in. It's usually refined carbohydrate. Right now in the U.S., about 30-30% of the calories that we eat in our diet come from fat. And I'll, we'll come back to that uh, towards the end when we do some of the nutrition prescriptions so you can figure out for yourself how much fat you need. Uh, there are 
three primary types of fat. If you've taken a basic nutrition class, you probably learned this. Um, we're going to spend most of our time today talking about triglycerides. Uh, this is the type of fat that constitutes about 95% of the fat in our diet and in our body. Um, phospholipids are another very small component of the dietary fats that we eat, um, but they basically allow fats and waters to mix. Because you eat dietary fat, and it needs to be digested through the watery environment of your gut, well, you need a little bit of phospholipid to help suspend those fats in that watery environment of your digestive tract. Um, and then lastly, sterols, the most well-known of which is cholesterol. We'll spend a little time talking about cholesterol towards the end of the lecture. So just to give you an idea of what a triglyceride looks like, uh, the name triglyceride kind of explains its structure in that it's got a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids attached to it. Now these fatty acids differ in length, um, and then also the fatty acids, we'll talk a little bit about how they're saturated or not saturated, and that kind of determines some of the things that what they do in our foods and what they do in our body. Again, the triglycerides are about 95% of the dietary fat that we eat. So where do we get fat from in our diet? Of course, it's the added fats that you guys already know about, the things like oils and butters. Now, we'll go through the different types of oils, and we'll talk about which ones are the heart-healthy ones, because you know, beyond olive oil and canola oil, there's a lot of other options out there. And we will talk about coconut oil, too, because I know everyone has pressing questions about that. But don't forget that the foods in our diets also provide fat, um, particularly animal foods, the meat, fish, poultry, even legumes, seeds, and nuts, plant-based foods, have plant oils in them, all of which contribute to our dietary fat intake. Um, depending upon whether or not you eat dairy, you may or may not be getting fat from there. And then within the dairy group, well, do you have high-fat or low-fat versions? And your fat intake would vary there as well. When it comes to fruits and vegetables, really the only two fruits that have vegetables are coconuts and avocados, uh, dramatically different types of fatty acid profiles, which we'll look at. Uh, potatoes, once you deep fry them and put a whole bunch of salt on them. There's some fat in there as well. But the, the remainder of the fruits and vegetables are inherently fat-free foods. Um, the added fats, oils, butters, margarines, uh, we'll come back to those as well. But combined, that's kind of where we get our fats from. It's mostly, in the case of the American diet, from animal foods. But please keep in mind that plant foods can be significant sources of fat. Those tend to be more on the heart-healthy end of the spectrum, though. What about the fat in your, in your body? Uh, we're increasingly interested from a research standpoint in our learning that where fat is located is actually quite important. It is not just the number on the scale that matters. Too often as practitioners we focus on, well, how much do you weigh? And we say that's a good number or a bad number based upon your height. But there's certainly, a, a, there's much more nuanced approaches now that as practitioners we should be taking. That is, where is the distribution of fat going? And we have uh, very good data to suggest that the type of fat that you hold around your middle area, what we call abdominal or visceral fat, that's the nasty bad fat. We know that that fat leaches into the bloodstream and is metabolized in the liver in a way that causes uh, negative effects on our lipid profiles and heart disease risk. So that beer belly that uh, you know, may look kind of cute in some conditions is actually not cute at all. It's actually quite a dangerous accumulation of fat. And so when we talk about people who have an apple shape with a large waist circumference, that visceral fat is more metabolically active and actually more dangerous than the fat you might carry in your butt or your thighs. So for women, especially premenopausal women, you might not like the fat in your butt and your thighs, but that type of fat is significantly less problematic than 
the shifts that you often see during and after menopause were kind of uh, tends to accumulate around the middle region. So paying attention to your pants size is important as well as paying attention to the number on your scale. Now, men are inherently more in tune with their waist circumference because their pant size actually matches a real number. That's the number of inches in their waist circumference. Women, we have done an excellent job of uh, distancing ourselves from true waist circumferences. We have numbers like zero and two and six for our sizes, which mean absolutely nothing. Um, So for women and for your women patients, it is important to measure their waist circumference. And a good rule of thumb is that for women, the cut point is 35 inches. Um, If your waist is above 35 inches, you're at dramatically increased risk for a host of metabolic conditions. And for men, that's 40 inches. Um, And you also want to congratulate your patients. When they're adopting more healthful lifestyles, the number on the scale might not be going down as quickly as they would like to see it. But when they tell you things like, oh, I can notch my pants in my belt one belt loop tighter, or I dropped a pant size... Even if the number on the scale is not changing, that is very impressive because we know that they're losing that central obesity. So again, the location of fat does matter. And just so you know, you can't eat a certain way or exercise a certain way to lose weight in a certain area. No matter what the ab blaster tells you or the thigh master tells you or certain diets that say that um, you can target belly fat, it doesn't work like that. You cannot eat or exercise a specific way to lose visceral fat. You have to do the whole package, which is cardiovascular and strength building exercise along with a diet that helps you reduce total fat will in turn help you lose that belly fat. Um, With regards to the location of of body fat, a large study called the Health, Aging, and Body Composition Study looked at 2,500 older adults aged 70 to 79, finding that those with more abdominal visceral fat had stiffer arteries than those with less. It didn't matter whether they were normal weight, overweight, or obese. So again, we need to stop focusing so much on exactly how much you weigh or what weight category you're in. Because it really is true that from a metabolic standpoint, it's what's on the inside that counts. And there's a whole movement, um, especially based out of UC Berkeley and the Center for Weight and Health, called Health at Every Size, or Health at Any Size. It's often sometimes referred to as the non-diet approach to weight loss. And it's this notion that you can be fat and fit. Before I was eight months pregnant, I used to run uh, half marathons quite regularly. And every half marathon I would finish, there was always inevitably a woman older than me and much heavier than me, way far ahead of me at the finish line. And just because I might have been skinnier than her, certainly in no regard made me healthier than her. Uh, This health at any size model really supports the notion of what's called metabolic fitness. That as practitioners, we should stop just focusing on numbers on the scale and really focus on what's your blood pressure? Where's the fat located? What's your blood cholesterol levels? These metabolic parameters determine health a lot more than just, well, are you overweight or are you healthy weight? Because we all know overweight people who are certainly very healthy metabolically, and I'm sure you know skinny people who are very unhealthy. They smoke a lot of cigarettes or they eat fast food maybe just once a day. Just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're healthy, and just because you're overweight or obese doesn't necessarily mean you're unhealthy. When it comes to the bad fats, we'll start with the saturated ones. Okay, we think S for saturated or S for solid. And saturated fats are those that are solid at room temperature. Okay, these are the guys that increase your bad cholesterol levels. Now, right off the bat, that's where a lot of patients get tripped up. They think, I have high blood cholesterol levels, so I'll just stop eating dietary cholesterol and my cholesterol will go down. It doesn't work like that. 
Uh, the commercials tell you, and you probably know as well, that it's not just the foods that you eat that affect your cholesterol, it's also your genetic makeup in your body. We're going to focus more on the foods today, but we know that the saturated fats in our diet are the ones that raise our bad cholesterol. The cholesterol in your diet really doesn't matter that much. It's these fats that we find in meat, cheese, full-fat dairy, ice cream, and butter, and then uh, what we call the tropical oils, which are in palm and coconut oil. And I'll come back to palm and coconut oil again in a second. When we talk about saturated fats, we say they're saturated in the sense that on the carbon-carbon chain of the fatty acid, pretty much every point that can be occupied by a hydrogen is. And because saturated fatty acids are straight-chain fatty acids, they stack very nicely, making a good solid fat at room temperature. So when you take out that beautiful steak tonight before you put it on the grill and you see it rimmed with a line of fat, first of all, don't kid yourself that when you put it on the grill, it cooks into the grill. Most of it actually cooks into the steak, unfortunately. But the reason you can see that solid fat is because it's full of saturated fatty acids. The top foods that, that comprise the majority of the saturated fat in our diet are listed here. And cheese is a huge culprit. And most of people, you know, you, if you like cheese and you like really good cheese, then this is disheartening. But it's important to note that in small amounts, you can eat very good cheese. Okay? Most of the cheese that Americans are eating is not very good quality cheese, and they are certainly not eating it in small amounts. Okay, we're talking about regular cheese, regular meaning not low fat or not reduced fat, uh, with pizza actually being the second highest source of saturated fat in the diet. That's due in large part to the copious amounts of cheese we put on pizza plus high-fat meats. Um, Grain-based desserts, dairy desserts, chicken and chicken mixed dishes, and it goes into burgers, Mexican food, but you can see meat and cheese, meat and cheese, meat and cheese. Um, I work in, uh, with an executive health program with a lot of male executives who spend the equivalent of one day a year focusing on their health, which these are people who have the capacity to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, yet they give one day a year to their health, but that's better than nothing. And oftentimes, I'm very interested by how many of them are motivated by fear. We were talking at the break with some of the participants about, you know, is it okay to talk about some of, you know, some people are motivated by fear. And I found with the older male executives that I work with, a lot of them are only interested in what you have to say about nutrition once somebody their age or younger has had a heart attack. Oh, my neighbor, he's a year younger than me. He had a heart attack. Someone a day older than them, ah, he's older than me. That's not going to happen to me. But someone their age or younger had a heart attack, very motivated to listen. And sometimes these guys are very black and white. Katie, tell me what I can do to not have another heart attack. They say, cut out meat and cut out cheese. It's the easiest way you can to basically drop your saturated fat levels to a level that is going to help bring your LDL cholesterol level down. And by the way, you're probably going to lose a whole bunch of weight along the way because these are people who tend to be largely sedentary. As far as the research goes, looking at meat and heart disease, okay, um, a study that looked at a, a prospective study looking at over a half a million people called Meat Intake and Mortality found that people who ate the most red meat, okay, so if you stratify people into how much meat do you eat a week, five ounces a day. And if, if you're curious, the, the palm of your hand is three ounces, or now we say the size of a computer mouse or a deck of cards. That's three ounces. Okay, so larger than that, about almost double that, five ounces a day, 30% more likely to die of heart disease or cancer over the next 10 years compared to those who ate the least red meat, which is less than two-thirds of an ounce of meat a day. No one's saying you can't eat red meat, but the portion sizes in which we eat red meat, lamb, veal, steak, and high-fat cuts of pork, certainly 
make a lot of people fall in that very high category. Okay, and you go to the restaurants and think about the smallest type of steak you can get at a typical good steakhouse is going to be a fillet at eight ounces or sometimes a petite fillet at six ounces. In reality, that's the equivalent of what you need in, in the entire week. So if you treat yourself once a week to a good eight ounce steak, that's fine. Especially working with male executives who are eating like that every single night plus a baked potato with a bunch of butter on it and a bottle of red wine, no exercise whatsoever. You can see how the problem compounds itself. Those who ate the most white meat, meaning poultry and fish, had a slightly lower risk of dying over a decade than those who ate the least. The takeaway message from the study is cut down or cut back on the amounts of red and processed meats that you eat. And when you're going to the store, we talked about cooking more at home is a great way to control your saturated fat intake. Um, when you go to the store and you buy meats, it's confusing as a consumer because you might have noticed there's no food labels on meat. The meat lobby in this country is extremely powerful to the point where they've exempted themselves from food labeling laws. You pick up a, 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 a box of cereal, it tells you what's in there. You pick up a container of meat, ground meat, it doesn't have to be in there. And so it's important to know that the difference between lean and extra lean, especially if you eat burgers, we want to focus on eating more of the extra lean cuts of meat. Those are the ones that have no more than 5% fat. Um, prime refers to the fattiest cut of meat. Select is the leanest, and choice is in the middle. When it comes to meat, the uh, raw amount cooks down by about 25%. Okay, So if you're dealing with a 4-ounce piece of meat, or let's say a, a burger, 4 ounces of ground raw meat, when you cook it, it will end up to be a 3-ounce burger. And 3 ounces, again, the size of the palm of your hand. Nobody eats burgers that small. They call them sliders. Okay, and then you usually put three of them together to have for an appetizer before you even eat your main meal. Okay, so let's compare two types of ground beef you would see typically at the store. Uh, meat people know what they're doing to sell you meat, and so they put the percentage that is lean first. And there's lots of really cool consumer-level data that shows us that Americans think if something says 70% lean, well, that must be good for them because, I mean, that's way more than 50% that's made up of the lean muscle, so it must be good. But actually, 70-30 meets the worst that you can buy, by definition, in the grocery store. It means that 30% of that remaining meat product is fat. A three ounce cooked burger, so that cooks down from four ounces to about the size of the palm of your hand, you'll see as 15 grams of fat and six grams of saturated fat. Okay? Now one number to keep in mind for the context of this lecture is 20 grams of saturated fat. That's the max you should have in a day. That's what the food label says. That's what most of the American Heart Association, Cancer Institute, they all agree. Try to stay under 20 grams a day. So you got your one little three ounce burger, okay, and there's six grams of saturated fat. You have that sliders for an appetizer, that's six, 12, 18 grams of saturated fat. Basically in your appetizer for dinner, if you're eating three small sliders, you just blew your saturated fat budget for the day, which is fine if you had no other saturated fat in your diet. But if you make the switch to the meat that you see on the right, 95% lean ground beef, Okay. Notice how the fat goes down to 6 grams and the saturated fat goes down to 3 grams. You essentially have cut in half the amount of the bad fat in your diet. Now, we're not saying you can go and eat twice as many burgers then, but the notion there is that you can still certainly eat red meat and even ground meat products, but you really want to go for the ones that are 95% lean. If you go to the restaurant, they're not interested in your saturated fat intake and your budget. 
Okay, so this is really for use when you're buying it at um, the grocery store. Look for extra lean or at least 95% lean. When it comes to poultry, not all chicken is created equal. I work with lots of people who say, oh, I don't have a problem with red meat because I'm just eating chicken now. Well, what types of chicken do you eat? Well, the legs, the wings, and the thighs. Okay. Ounce per ounce, the dark meat of chicken, legs, wings, and thighs, the reason why it tastes so delicious is because it's full of saturated fat. It's the same as eating a steak. Okay? So don't kid yourself into thinking you're doing yourself a lot of favors by switching from meat to poultry unless you're making the right choices when it comes to poultry. When we talk about lean poultry, we're talking about chicken breast or turkey breast. Okay? Um, ground products, oftentimes, I have, um, I'm the oldest of six kids, and my mom's a dietitian as well, so you would think some of my siblings would know more about nutrition. And I go to this one restaurant with my brother all the time, and he always gets a turkey burger. He's like, I can't believe you eat a hamburger, Katie, it's so bad for you. So first of all, I'm pregnant, I can eat whatever I want to. But secondly, <laughs> with the turkey burger, I said, Dave, look it up online at this one particular restaurant we go to. When you eat a ground turkey burger, they're inevitably grinding up the skin as well as all the dark meat of the turkey. And lo and behold, we looked up this one restaurant, and the nutrition facts were online. Same size turkey burger had 10 grams more of saturated fat. That's the worst kind of fat than the hamburger did. And the hamburger wasn't a healthy hamburger to begin with, but it's because the ground turkey products are oftentimes the dark meat plus the skin. So when you go to a restaurant, a turkey burger is more often than not going to be worse for you than the hamburger. At home or at the grocery store, you can buy ground turkey breast. You can read right there, okay, this is just the lean meat. There's no skin in it. That's going to be a good option. But they don't do that for you at the restaurants. If you take a look uh, comparing the chicken breast on the left with the chicken thigh on the right, okay, meat only roasted, one cup chopped. Chicken breast, because it's low in fat, is also going to be low in saturated fat. Okay, so you can kind of, if you're trying to say, well, what kind of chicken can I eat? You can eat, as, really not as much as you want, but you can be pretty liberal with regards to chicken breast, knowing that there's not a lot of fat, so there's not going to be a lot of saturated fat in that. If you eat the thigh the same amount, one cup chopped, you get four times as much saturated fat. Okay? And it's only four grams, but you think that most people are eating meat two or three times a day. They're eating very large portions. Meat, along with cheese, will clearly and quickly get you over that 20 grams a day that you want to stay under. One thing I've, uh, we, we know from practice is that when you talk about saturated fat and you cut the saturated fat out, sometimes you get the unintended consequence of people, well, what should I replace it with? They start eating a lot more sugar, and then their triglycerides go up. So I worked for a number of years with a cardiology practice here in San Francisco, and it was always interesting to see people, okay, trying to eat less meat, trying to eat less cheese. I'm cutting out all that saturated fat you're telling me about, Katie. And the cardiologist would get mad. Says, now their triglycerides are going through the roof. So when you eat more refined carbohydrates and more breads, your triglycerides do go up. And so we know um, from research that a, the best thing to do is if you're working on cutting out your saturated fat, which will help bring down your bad cholesterol levels, in order to prevent your triglycerides from spiking, you need to make sure that the carbs that you're eating are whole grain. Okay, you really want to stay away from the refined grains. When you cut out the meats, don't start eating a bunch of white bread. Cut out the meats and cheese, and then make sure that the carbs that you're eating are whole grain. The fiber in there will help keep the triglycerides under control. As far as how many grams a day you need, the last bullet point there shows you. It, basically, we're aiming for 20 grams a day. 
Okay, and that helps you stay within the American Heart Association guidelines of what they say is 7 to 10% of your calories from saturated fat. But I think because grams are what is listed on the label, that's the best number to go with. And keep 20 in your head. Um, one really good place we can cut saturated fat is from full-fat dairy. If you can tolerate dairy, you want to get the good stuff from it, which is the protein, the vitamin A, and the vitamin D, and the calcium. But you don't want the bad stuff. And full-fat dairy is high in saturated fat. Um, you might remember that uh, about a, a little bit more than a decade ago, if you bought 2% milk, it was called low-fat milk. Does anyone know what 2% milk is called now? It's called reduced fat. And low-fat milk is 1%. So you went to bed one night thinking 2% was low-fat, and the next day you woke up, and now low-fat's 1%. And the reason why is because 2% milk is actually not that low in saturated fat. Um, when it comes to your milks, you really want to stick to 1% or non-fat if you can because you get, again, the same amount of protein, vitamin A, calcium, vitamin D, but you get way less calories, fat, and saturated fat. A cup of whole milk gives you five grams of saturated fat, whereas a cup of non-fat milk, since there's no fat, there's no saturated fat. And if you're doing what the government recommends, which is drinking three cups of milk a day, if you drink three cups of whole milk a day, that's five, 10, 15 grams of saturated fat. You just got 75% of your whole day's budget of saturated fat from milk, which is ostensibly a healthy food. Full-fat milk really is not that healthy. Um, the exception there is with children age 1 to 2. Um, kids who are age 1 can have um, cow's milk, and within the 1 to 2-year range, they need the whole milk for fat and brain development. But after age 2, kids get plenty of fat from elsewhere in their diet. So if you're working with kids age 2 and older, especially in certain groups we're concerned about obesity, we don't want them getting used to a bunch of high-fat whole milk products. Get them on non-fat or low-fat milk as early as you can. You retain all the good nutrients, but you help save them with a lot of calories and saturated fat. I'm going to show you a picture of a Subway sandwich here just because um, I'll show you, you know, in a short period of time, your saturated fat, if you eat meat and cheese, can add up pretty quickly. Um, a slice of American cheese, which on a typical foot long, they're going to give you two, okay, unless you pay for more. Two, a slice of cheese has five grams of saturated fat. So if you put two slices on there, they, they cut them in half in the picture, that's why you see four, okay, but basically that's two slices of American cheese, that's 10 grams of saturated fat, plus if you're getting the Italian combo, there's another 10 grams right there. So in one sandwich at lunch from Subway, which there are healthy ways to eat at Subway and certainly unhealthy ways to eat at Subway. But a sandwich like that in one sandwich is going to give you your max intake of saturated fat for the day. If you put regular mayo on it, you're now over the budget. Interesting note is that Subway is one of the few fast food outlets that does have light mayo. You can ask for it. They don't default to light. They used to. But it's more expensive. But you can ask them for light mayo that has half the fat and saturated fat as well. You can also go no cheese and then choose the lower, cuts of, lower fat cuts of meat like turkey breast, the ham, or the roast beef. Next up is trans fats. I won't spend much time on this because trans fats are almost eliminated from our diet. Um, trans fats are those partially hydrogenated oils that we also know raise our LDL. Um, they increase your bad cholesterol, they decrease your good cholesterol, and they increase cardiovascular disease risk. Um, but for the most part, manufacturers have taken the trans fats out of their foods. But guess what? They've replaced the trans fat with saturated fat. So when people ask you, so they say as a dietitian, what's better for me, butter or margarine? Well, butter is full of saturated fat, which raises your bad cholesterol, and margarine is full of trans fat, which raises your bad cholesterol. So neither of them is a better choice because if you eat a lot of either, 
it would raise your total cholesterol and raise your bad cholesterol. If you like the way butter tastes, then use a small amount of it in moderation. Manufacturers, again, took all the trans fats out of our foods about 2006 when they started putting that info on the labels. You actually see very little trans fat in the diet anymore. But keep in mind, it's been replaced by the other bad one, which is saturated fat. Um, we call The trans fats we find in um, foods like... Um, the hardened shell you would put on the top of an ice cream, you know, if you get one of those ice creams, they dip it in the candy shell. It, it makes the foods uh, solid at room temperature very quickly. Uh, manufacturers love trans fats because they increase the shelf life. It's the reason why a Twinkie can stay on the shelf for 10 years. There's a little bit of trans fat in there. Um, there's a loophole you might be familiar with, is that you can buy a product that advertises itself as being trans fat free, uh, but it, if it says, if something has less than a half a gram of trans fat, the manufacturer can still technically call it trans fat free. Um, prior to 2006, when trans fat was not on our labels, the only way you knew if you were eating these bad fats was you'd have to look for partially hydrogenated or hydrogenated oils in the ingredient list. Now you can still see hydrogenated oils, and then the product's called trans fat free. It's because there's this half a gram loophole. So a good example is a cereal, for example, I'm just showing you Waffle Crisp, which you know, right off the bat is probably not the healthiest cereal for you, but you can see that it says zero grams of trans fat, and yet in the ingredient list you see hydrogenated oils listed. Again, that means there's just slightly under a half a gram per serving, but keep in mind most people don't just eat one serving, right? They might have two, three, four servings, at which point you had a half a gram, one gram, two grams of or trans fat a day. And you really don't need any trans fat in your diet at all. You can get by with zero grams. Trans fat bans, uh, New York City, really kind of the, the leader under Mayor Bloomberg for a lot of different nutrition undertakings, kind of where New York City goes, eventually California goes, and then the rest of the nation. Um, there is a little data to suggest that trans fat bans do help reduce the amount of trans and saturated fats in our diet. But again, we're kind of focusing on the wrong things when we talk about trans fats because it's really the saturated fats in our diet that are causing the greatest um, bump up in our bad cholesterol and heart disease risk levels. I mentioned butter and margarine just to show you the comparison. A tablespoon of butter is the label on the left and a tablespoon of margarine is the label on the right. A tablespoon of any fat is going to have about 100 calories. So even with olive oil, we say, you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. You can't pour tablespoons of oil all over your vegetables. You're going to have four or 500 extra calories you probably don't need. A tablespoon of butter and a tablespoon of margarine each have about 100 calories and 11 grams of fat. But you'll notice with the butter, seven of those grams are saturated. And with um, the margarine on the right-hand side, um, the saturated fat goes down, but then you see a little bit more trans fat which is two grams. You might wonder, well, if there's 11 grams of total fat in a tablespoon of margarine, and two are saturated and two are trans, what are the other seven? Those other seven grams are the mono and polyunsaturated fats. Those don't have to be listed on the label, but sometimes they are. Your unsaturated fatty acids are the ones that have at least one carbon-carbon double bond in there. Remember, the saturated ones are totally maxed out with the hydrogens. They stack really nicely. The unsaturated ones, because they have some points of unsaturation, they get kinks in them. And so those fatty acids, the kinks don't stack very nicely, and that's why they become liquid at room temperature. So now for the good guys, the monounsaturated fats. We mentioned some of the components of the Mediterranean diet. 
And the reason why the Mediterranean diet has such good data behind it to suggest it reduces death from heart attack and stroke, etc., is because it's full of these heart-healthy fats. Now you're familiar with canola and olive oil, but some of the other components of the monounsaturated fat family are things like avocados, uh, peanut butter, sesame seeds, and nuts. Okay. Now, nuts we go back and forth on. Some good studies recently to show that nuts can help reduce mortality. People who eat nuts more often are more likely to have lower rates of mortality. But you've got to take into account people that eat nuts for a snack as compared to people who probably eat potato chips for a snack are likely doing other healthful behaviors as well, eating less red meat, exercising more, not drinking alcohol or smoking to excess. As far as a breakdown of the oils go, um, this is an interesting slide because it shows you what the fatty acid profile of some of the different oils you might have in your pantry are. Okay? And what the colors mean here is yellow is showing you the monounsaturated, those really good heart-healthy fats. The red part is showing you the saturated fats. Okay? And so if we look at the, the fatty acid profile spectrum, saturated fats are the bad guys, monounsaturated guys are the best guys. Okay, and so starting from the top, canola oil okay, is about 60% monounsaturated fat. You don't get an oil that's 100% saturated or 100% monounsaturated. They're a combination of polyunsaturated, unsaturated, and saturated fatty acids. But basically, we're looking for the ones that are mostly monounsaturated fats. And you can see that those include canola oil, if you drop down olive oil, You've got safflower oil, okay? Those are really good heart-healthy options, okay? Peanut oil's about 50%. Um, peanut oil is, we use it sometimes, it has the highest smoke point, um, along with avocado oil of any oil, so depending upon what you're cooking, super high heat cooking, if you're doing a lot of stir-frying, walking, you know, peanut oil's a, a good option to use. But to what you wanna stay away from are the ones that are mostly red. And you might notice that coconut oil takes the cake when it comes to saturated fatty acid profile. Coconut oil is 90% saturated fat. And despite whatever Dr. Oz says, or whatever you read online, coconut oil is not good for you, okay? It tastes delicious, so in small amounts, it's perfectly fine to be using in your kitchen. But every single major health group and professional association that's associated with medicine and evidence-based medicine says there's absolutely nothing to suggest increasing the amount of coconut oil. At the end of the day, we still believe, based on research, that a diet high in saturated fats increases your risk of heart disease. So if you go wild with coconut oil, you're clearly going to be having too much saturated fat. There's a little bit of data suggesting that the saturated fats that come from plant-based sources, like coconuts, may be less dangerous than the saturated fats you get from meat and cheese, although these are very small studies. It's really only been in the last five years even that researchers have been looking at that. So down the road, that might prove the case that a, a saturated fat from a plant, like a coconut, is going to behave differently inside our arteries than a saturated fat from a cow or from cheese. But at this point, the American Medical Association, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they all say maintain a diet low in saturated fat which includes coconut oil. If you look at vegetable oil versus canola oil, if you go to the store and you, you, you bake and you're gonna, I need something for my cake, um, oftentimes vegetable oil, when we see it on the shelves, is just a combination of whatever vegetable oils were cheapest on the market that day. So oftentimes vegetable oils, you'll see 13 grams of fat, but 10 of them are saturated. 
Okay, we want to stay away from saturated fats. There's really no place for vegetable oil in your pantry because anything vegetable oil can do, canola oil can do better. Okay, 13 grams of fat and a tablespoon of canola oil, but look at how only one of those grams are saturated. Canola oil costs the same as vegetable oil, it tastes the same as vegetable oil, it behaves the same as vegetable oil in cooking and baking, and yet you can see it's a significantly better choice for you because it has much less saturated fat. I mentioned cholesterol briefly just because um, people are curious about egg yolks. Okay, cholesterol is another type of fat. Okay, um, you oftentimes will see silly things. I know um, Planters Peanuts has a big banner on the front that says, um, "Peanuts are a cholesterol-free food." Well, cholesterol only comes from animals. Okay, if something has a liver and can produce cholesterol, then when you eat it, you eat its cholesterol. Last time I checked, peanuts do not have a liver. They do not produce cholesterol oil. So there's nothing magical about planters' peanuts that are cholesterol-free. Um, you'll see restaurants that tout or brag about, our french fries are fried in cholesterol-free oil. Well, all plant oils are cholesterol-free. Okay? We're not really concerned about cholesterol from plants because we don't get it there. We get cholesterol from animal foods. Okay. Uh, the American Heart Association recommends that you keep, if you're following a heart-healthy diet, your cholesterol to less than 200 milligrams a day. Okay. One egg has 186 milligrams of cholesterol. We can say it's roughly about what you should have a day. So people say, well, can I eat eggs if I have high cholesterol? You say, first and foremost, the amount of cholesterol in your diet doesn't really matter that much. You've got to pay attention to the saturated fat. What are you eating the eggs with? Did you pour a bunch of butter in the pan, then put your eggs in, then put it on some white bread with butter on it and top it with bacon? That might be a problem. One egg yolk a day is still going to put you under the amount of cholesterol you need in a day. And if um, we don't have a lot of other sources of cholesterol. If you eat a lot of other shellfish, if you're eating a lot of high-fat dairy, yes, you could be getting some cholesterol. But for the most, point, most part, the average of one egg yolk a day is not a horrible thing, even for people that have high cholesterol. And basically, it means that in a week, you can have the equivalent of roughly seven egg yolks a week. When it comes to omega-3 fatty acids, I think Dr. Barron kind of covered this, that the majority of the data shows us that supplementing with omega-3 fatty acids has not uh, borne out as being the really big panacea for all these different conditions we thought they were going to be. Um, omega-3 fatty acids are components of your cell membrane, and we do know that to some degree they help mediate inflammation. So we're starting to study the effect of inflammation in our body and how do the foods we eat promote inflammation. You might have heard about pro or anti-inflammatory diets. And they sound fancy and complicated, but basically a pro-inflammatory diet has a bunch of animal foods in it and an anti-inflammatory diet has a bunch of plant foods in it. Um, there's some different types of omega-3 fatty acids, though. And the area we want to focus on with regards to the ones that have proven to be beneficial for preventing against inflammation are EPA plus DHA. Okay, you might know that that's the type of omega-3 fatty acids that we find in fish and fish oils. And we'll talk about what fish are best in a second. But there's a whole other area of omega-3s called ALA. You find those in flaxseed and canola oil. But we know that they don't give us the same health benefits that the EPA plus DHA do. So sometimes you see silly products out there that say, this egg has a whole bunch of omega-3 in it. Or this butter spread is an omega-balanced butter spread. You think, well, I don't eat enough fish, so I should probably be buying these products to get my omegas. That's not the case because they tend to contain these ALAs, which, to be honest, your body cannot convert to EPA plus DHA. And you really don't need that much of anyway. 
we still continue to want to focus on fish as the primary source of omega-3s in the diet. How much omega-3 do you need? Okay, there's different recommendations based on whether you have established heart disease or you don't. Okay? The American Heart Association says if you have documented heart disease, you should aim to eat fish at least two times a week. And that's a good recommendation on top of the fact that every fish serving of fish you're eating is probably one less serving of red meat you're eating. So if you can cut out the red meat and replace it with the fish, you're doing yourself a favor on two fronts. You're getting more omega-3s from the fish and less saturated fat from the meat. Okay. If you if you do have documented heart, I'm sorry. The first one was if you don't have heart disease. But if you do have heart disease, the AHA says you should get the equivalent of one gram a day. Okay. We'll talk about what that means in a second. Preferably, you want to be getting that EPA plus DHA from fish. But if not, you want to get it from supplements. And in my experience, I say most practitioners they would agree that. People who have documented heart disease who take fish oil supplements rarely take the full dose. And we know that taking half or quarter doses does absolutely nothing to help you. If you have heart disease, you need to get a gram a day. And for most fish oil supplement preparations, if you're not eating fish and you're taking pills, that means three pills a day. Um, If you've taken fish oil pills, you might notice they sometimes give you a little bit of a fishy aftertaste. One thing you can do to prevent that is to pop those pills in the freezer When you swallow them, for whatever reason, it doesn't cause those kind of fish burps that turn so many people off, okay? Um, If you have very high triglycerides, your cardiologist or your doctor may recommend two to four grams a day, which is a pretty high dose. From the American Heart Association standpoint, if you do have documented heart heart disease, you want to aim for one gram a day, but no one's saying you have to get it from the supplements. We'd always prefer that you get it from foods, but the reality is the best source of that EPA plus DHA is going to be in fish. So if you don't take fish or you don't like fish or you don't eat fish, then you do need to look towards supplements. If you do eat fish, though, you might be curious, well, how much is a gram? Um, this, the, the print is kind of small here, but this is from the Nutrition Action Health Letter, which is a, a great monthly health letter that you can get delivered to your home mailbox. I don't know, but I find myself more inclined to read things that come in the mail these days because it's less frequent than things that come in your email inbox. But recently this newsletter went through to rank how much EPA plus DHA do you get in the different types of fish. And we know that salmon is really the best source of fish. Um, If you look at a six-ounce serving, that's two palms of your hand. That's about what you would get at a restaurant. If you got a piece of salmon, you have about 3,500 milligrams of EPA plus DHA. That's 3.5 grams. If you do that twice a week, that's 7,000. That's 7 grams. All you have to do is eat that piece of salmon two days a week, and you got your average gram a day that you need if you have documented heart disease. And that's all well and good if you like salmon. If you don't like salmon, though, you can see that some of the other ones, they're significantly less sources of the omega-3s. In that case, you may want to consider fish oil, especially if you have uh, uh, very high triglycerides as well. As far as some research on fish oil pills in cardiovascular disease, okay, in 2012, a pretty good double-blind study with over 12,000 participants who are at high risk for heart disease and had prediabetes were randomized into a group where they got either one gram capsule with omega-3s okay, and then to, or a placebo, and then um, they got their diabetes care modulated as well. Okay, and basically, the primary outcome was looking at, did they die from heart disease? And after a six-year follow-up, Okay, basically, the results were kind of similar. 
Okay, there's virtually no difference between the intervention and the control group for stroke, heart attack, death from arrhythmia, um, or heart failure hospitalization. Okay, so there are some studies that are indicating we might be overemphasizing the things that omega-3 fatty acids can do. Okay, researchers speculate that patients on heart meds in the study may have, to some degree, masked some of those benefits. Okay, so one big study showing that fish oil, um, it's not harmful for you, okay, but it may not be this panacea that some think it is. With regards to dementia, you sometimes see some silly stuff online um, about, well, I take a bunch of fish oil because it's going to help my memory. Okay? Fish is called a brain food because fish helps with brain development. Um, omega-3 fatty acids are extremely important during pregnancy, and um, especially in small children. Breast milk is rich in DHA. Um, pregnant women take prenatal vitamins that have omegas in them in order to help the brain development. But later on in life, okay, results from uh, this particular study have shown no benefit for cognitive function with omega-3 fatty acid supplements among cognitively healthy older people. So if you're trying to hold on to your sanity in the older ages of life, the omega-3 fatty acid supplements are probably not going to help you. Again, they're not harmful, but they're not going to improve your cognitive um, abilities. So the last thing I want to do is just give you the individualized prescription for when you walk out of here, okay, how much of each of these types of fats do you need? You already know if you have documented heart disease, you should aim for about a gram of omega-3s a day. Okay? Try to get it from fish if you can. But if you can't, then the fish oil supplements may be a good alternative. If you don't have heart disease, you need half that, 500 milligrams. You basically got to eat salmon once a week as opposed to twice a week. The American Heart Association gives us all these kind of confusing numbers. Um, the one, uh, they have a diet called the therapeutic lifestyle change. They have very good data to suggest if you keep your saturated fat low, if you keep your fat moderate, if you stay around that 200 milligrams of cholesterol a day and can keep your sodium to about 2,400 milligrams, okay, that's the diet that will most likely reduce your risk of heart disease. Does this work? Okay. Um, yes. Adopting this therapeutic lifestyle change, whereby you cut back on the bad fats, okay, and usually you have to increase your fiber as well, um, can help bring down your LDL cholesterol levels. That's the bad cholesterol. You bring down your LDL, you also bring down your total cholesterol. Cutting your saturated fat back can reduce your LDL by somewhere between 8 to 10%. Keeping your dietary cholesterol to the equivalent of about one egg yolk a day 3 to 5% reduction in LDL. If you keep your weight in a healthy range or you lose 10 pounds if you're overweight, 5 to 8% reduction. Soluble fiber, 3 to 5%. And then also plant stanols and sterols. We didn't talk about those, but those are products that are sometimes added to salad dressings or butter spreads. They have a very uh, small effect um, for the most part on LDL cholesterol levels. But if you add those all up together, you can reduce your LDL by about 20 to 30%. And there is no drug that can reduce your LDL cholesterol that effectively. Okay? And so when you're working with patients, it's important to remind them, some of them just want that prescription for Lipitor to bring their LDL down. But for those that don't, making these dietary changes can have a very impressive effect on bringing down your LDL cholesterol. Okay? So at the end here, um, most people need about 50 grams of fat. Okay? You don't want to go too low on your fat. And that's become an issue with certain populations. We're not advocating for a low-fat diet anymore. Make sure you get at least 50 grams of fat a day, but of those, no more than 20 should be saturated. 
Okay, so if you're looking, if you sit down at Denny's and you're going to have a breakfast that's got 50 grams of fat, that is fine. It's just that the rest of the day you have room for zero more grams of fat. Okay, so 50 at a minimum, try to spread it out throughout the day. Most adults, somewhere between 50 and 65 grams is a good place to be. Okay, so you're, for a person on a 2,000 calorie diet, which Dr. Barron explained doesn't work for everyone, but it's a good ballpark for most adults, 65 grams of fat around there, 20 of those max should be saturated fat. Every ounce of cheese, an American cheese slice or the size of a domino, that's five grams. Keep your cheese low, keep your meat low. Together, you'll be able to keep your saturated fat below 20. You do not need any trans fat. And if you can keep your cholesterol to less than 200 milligrams a day, these are the numbers we should be looking at on the food label. And if your head is swimming in numbers right now, I would say the one you really want to walk away with is that 20 grams of saturated fat. You want to stay below that if you can. If you're interested in learning more, the American Heart Association has a really kind of cool interactive tool now called Meet the Fats. They have what they call the bad fat brothers and the better fat sisters. The bad fat brothers are sat and trans, and then the good fat sisters are mono and poly. And you could go on there. I mean, some of this stuff gets a little dry, but the point is we like fat, and fat should be part of our diet. But there are certainly better choices, and as I like Dr. Barron's rule, if you can't make the best choice opt for the better choice, and those better fats, the poly and the monounsaturated, are the ones you really want to be aiming for. I've got a couple more um, in, uh, links for you here um, on fats. Again, I think the American Heart Association probably has the most user-friendly of, of the sites there, and again, that's called the Meet the Fats. Um, so does anyone have any questions about uh, some of the dietary fats in particular in the foods or the products you see at restaurants or at home? Okay, about avocados. Um, avocados and coconuts are the only two fruits that have fat. The majority of the fat in avocados is monounsaturated. So it's an extremely heart-healthy type of fat. A fifth of an avocado has five grams of fat, and only one of those are saturated. Now, who eats just a fifth of an avocado, right? I tend to eat the whole thing. That's 25 grams of fat, but that's mostly going to be the monounsaturated source of fat. Coconuts, on the other hand, are about 90% fat. So you really want to minimize the 90% saturated fat, rather. So those are the only two fruits that have fat in them. Any thoughts on farm salmon versus any questions on farm versus wild-caught salmon? Um, it, I went through it quickly, but you might have noticed that the farmed salmon has more omega-3s than the wild salmon. Now, not from an environmental standpoint, but from a nutritional standpoint, um, oftentimes the farmed fish is considered to be healthier for two reasons. The feed that is given to those fish is highly controlled, and there's additional omega-3s added, so you end up with salmon with higher omega-3s. Secondly, there's less likelihood for mercury toxicity when you're eating fish from a highly controlled environment like a farm. Again, not taking into account the environmental impacts, but in those regards for the mercury and the omega-3s, the farmed fish actually tends to be healthier. In reality, when you buy fish at the store, you have almost no way to know if it is farmed or if it is wild. There's no such thing as organic fish in this country. Um, and a really good resource if you want to learn more about sustainable fish choices is from the Monterey Aquarium. Um, they have a really good app where you can click on the different types of fish and they tell you more likely than not if it was farmed sustainably or an unsustainable. Um, again, that's the Monterey Aquarium. It's called a Seafood Watcher app. So, all right, thank you very much. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.